0: Welcome to 007x7, the podcast where we are investigating the James Bond films seven minutes at a time. I'm John Engel. And I'm Mitch Bryan. And today we're looking at minutes
1: 21 to 28, which begins with the enemy chauffeur biting down on a hidden cyanide capsule and ends with Bond watching a reticent quarrel go away. Now, in between, we have a meeting at Government House. We investigate True, Bar- True Blood's place, uh, a scene of Bond drinking and spy-proofing his hotel room at a chat at the Queen's Club with Strangway's Bridge Buddies, and a meeting with Quarrel, the fisherman who last saw Strangway's. Today we're joined by a friend of the show. You may know him as Winston Churchill on Doctor Who, or Bert Large on Doc Martin, or maybe even Baron Harkonnen in the Sci-Fi Channel's version of Dune. He is an actor who has worked with the likes of Alan Bates and Oliver Reed and, and one Sean Connery, and with directors like Martin Campbell, for example, another Bond connection, uh, Brian De Palma and a host of other directors. He's got many, many stories, and we're so glad to have the one, the only Ian McNeese right here, live from England.
2: What a buildup. How can I follow that? I'm I'm completely dumbfounded now.
1: It's great to have you.
2: It's great to be here. I'm really glad to be coming on board. I love my little time before with the alien, so this will be a treat to come back. I've been brought back, everybody, brought back.
1: So, do you remember the first James Bond movie that you saw? Do you have any recollection of what that would have been? Oh
2: my goodness me, I've got no recollection. It must have been this one, surely, because this was the first one that came out. Yeah, it must have been up, you know, out there. I mean, what what do you it came out what nineteen sixty sixty two? Sixty
1: two.
2: I would have been twelve, so yes, it would have been this. Probably, I would have thought.
1: The, you lived in London most of most of your life, right?
2: No, no, I lived in. Um, uh, I lived in Basingstoke, which was a little town outside of London, about an hour and a half away by train, and then I, lived, uh, I went to school in Somerset, which was even further away from London. So I didn't actually get to London until, you know, about sort of the year of, uh, when I was about 18, 19, when I went to drama school. So yeah.
1: You know, I have to ask, you made the Russia house with Sean Connery, and you: I you, did. You played I did. some I scenes did. with him, and I'm just really curious what that I was did. like.
2: Well, it was it was interesting because um, I actually experienced something that I'd never experienced before, which was turning up on the set to meet the director and rehearse. And normally you're there with all the other actors and you block the scene and then you rehearse it and then you talk with the director. So I was there with um, another of the actors who was in the sh- in the show. It was a little cafe in Lisbon on location there, and but. No Sean Connery. And I thought, well, maybe he'll turn up in a minute uh, until I realised his, uh, his stand-in, right, which had been his stand-in on many, many movies before and probably since as well, was there in his stead. And I'd never experienced this, that the, uh, that the stand-in knew all the lines of Sean. And we rehearsed. We rehearsed with the stand-in. And um, what must have happened was, um, you know, at the end of doing the scene and he returned to the trailers where they all were, he must have gone into Sean, who was probably just relaxing and said, "Okay, Sean, this is what you do. And so when we actually shot the scene, when Sean turned up, which was delightful, he was very charming. Um, we shot the scene, he he knew all the moves, he knew where to sit, he knew where to stand, but it was fascinating that now, whether he was just being, you know, just a little precious, or whether he was just a little tired, or whether he just thought, you know what, I'm not going to turn up to, who knows, but it worked, and I I just remember the first thing about him was his eyes, looking at those two extraordinarily magnetic, I think they're blue, but it was absolutely, I'm thinking to myself, my God, that's where the money is, because the charisma of those eyes alone were huge, and of course you look up to Sean because he's six foot plus.
1: So that was a uh, that was to start with a, a great a great moment. Is he is he very he was present though for the scene in the sense that he was there for you? I mean you you you. Oh
2: was... yes, totally. And also when we did the reverses, a lot of stars sometimes don't even bother to you know, hang about for those. Old Someone else does the reverses with you, but but no, he was there for all of that, and he was charming, and he was uh, he was good to work with. Um, we did have to break while they were doing a bit of lighting, and he said, "Let's go and have a coffee." And I said, "Okay." So we went down the road a little bit to another café, and when we got there, we ordered the coffee, and he went, "Oh, uh, I don't seem to have any money on me." I went, <laughs> I'd heard <laughs> all these rumours about Sean being a little tight, maybe, and I thought, "My God, they're true." <laughs> so I bought the coffee and I bought the cognac or whatever else we had, a little little stiffener to keep us going for the rest of the morning. Uh, so, so that was that was quite sweet as well. Maybe
1: that's uh, just like a that. thing with rich people because my my brother-in-law's grandfather used to play golf with Howard Hughes and said Howard Hughes never had any money on him at all. Yeah. So I don't yeah. know. Maybe that's how you get rich.
2: Another maybe. thing that I remember uh, the second scene we had to do uh was inside a car we were both inside a car and sean started talking about oh you know the car we in and i can't remember what it was it was some glitchy thing he said they you know it's a placement car and they said i could have it if i wanted to but uh, you know what no i don't want this and i said well what do you drive sean and he said well i i used to drive an old mercedes because i i live in spain or Mabea or somewhere like that where he lives he said but uh, you know, I've just, I gave that to my uh, uh, brother in law and I, I've imported something. I said, What did you import? He said, Well, it's a sort of land cruiser, but I had it converted to diesel. And I said, Oh, you converted it to diesel? And he said, Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, it's so much cheaper than petrol. <laughs> <laughs> I thought, How much did it cost to convert this? <laughs> the little number in the first place. That, 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 was, that was another nice little chuckle, a chuckle on the way, I tell you.
1: Well, let's jump into the minutes, why don't we okay uh, you know you um you we got we have a, a a suicide that starts all of the action with this in some ways, I guess is kind of the quietest seven minutes of the whole movie, but um we've got you to help us with all of the actors that are acting in all of the scenes because it's it's all people talking to each other, except for this moment when the guy uh bites down on the cigarette did has anybody figured out what he says, John, do you yeah, know what he, he says?
0: He says to hell with you oh. I could. I did. And I, I admit I had to look it up and it took a while because it's uh, widely unknown. People tended to, a lot of the answers tended to be always just gurgling and grunting. And then I finally found this uh, chat room kind of thing where somebody said, well, just turn on the closed captioning. It says to hell with you. So I went back and looked at it myself and then listened. And when you listen, knowing what he says, you can hear it very clearly. But that's what he says. Okay. Thank you for that, John. Yeah.
1: Ian, we, you know, you noted actually when he when we drive back to Government House to that um, beautiful shot of the mountains in the background, and he pulls up with the dead man in the back. Uh, yeah, you made the point uh, in in these notes that 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 might be the first quip by James Bond, right? Do You know what? I think
2: it is because it it, it just cracked me up because there he is, you know, he's. He gets out of the car and he's got the, he's got the chauffeur dead in the car with his eyes open. And uh, and he turns to the sergeant who's saluting him and he says to him, sergeant, make sure that he doesn't get away. And I reckon that that must be one of the very early Bond dry one liners, I have to say, his trademarks. Yeah. I think it starts there, quite frankly. It's a really cute line. Because you see the double take that goes on with the sergeant as he looks right. at the guy and he goes, oh my, what, what, yeah. what? Yeah, it's so, pretty so, good. Yeah, yeah, that's yeah, no, good, that.
0: I think it's interesting to note too, though, that how he acted, how Connery acted the scene prior when the driver kills himself, he's shocked by it a little bit. You know, he plays that shock and even a little bit of disgust or disturbed, being disturbed by it, which I don't think we'd get from Roger Moore, right? Like, I think by the time we get to a certain um, period of bond, this is everyday, <laughs> this is an everyday occurrence. Where here, for, for, I think we could discuss the different reasons why he played it this way, he's surprised that this happened. He inspects the cigarette, he smells it, and so on, and he's a little disturbed by it. Now, what, how do you guys read that? I think there's a couple of different ways to read that. But I think it's also particularly interesting juxtaposed with, juxtaposed with the cut to this next scene where he does make the flippant quip.
2: I think you're right as well. But, but I also think around that time, it's interesting that you see how, how Sean handles himself because there's a little bit of action where um, he's attacked twice and he does a little spin with his arm. He throws him in a somersault and all the rest. But it, it gives you a good look at how, how Bond can handle himself. And I think that's a good little moment.
1: But, you know, that disgust that you mentioned, John, it it does make me think of the moment later on, you know, with the spider where he's visibly going to throw up in the bathroom. So this is a really human James Bond
0: that we're getting here for the first time out of the gate, which is...
2: Very good. Very good points.
0: Yep. I think that it should also be noted that as far as... um, There's uh, some stakes raised here, too. I mean, obviously, a guy killing himself by itself is raising the stakes. It's like, whoa, what makes a guy do this? But I think then Connery's playing off the stakes being raised as well. He's saying, because we're still at that point where we're unsure, Connery's un- or, or sorry, Bond is unsure how deep this is going to go, how dangerous of a mission he's really on. So once a guy kills himself instead of talking, you know, it's, it's a bigger deal than you thought it was originally, mm-hmm. you know. So I think that's part of it. But I think you're right, though, Mitch. I think there's definitely that humanity um, uh, sprinkled into his character here. And like I said before, I think it starts to dissipate as the movies go on. We get less and less of this. We get less and less of this disgusted or disturbed or concerned bond and more of the one we get or the, the, the make sure he doesn't get away. Box.
1: It's got to make that joke play better, though, right, by having that real emotion to the fact that the guy really is sure. dead. And then to throw it off with that kind of a line is, is must have been really surprising to audiences at the time.
2: What we're going to find as well as we go on into the other scenes is the... Um, these actors, and some are actors and some are not actors. I mean, some we're going to find are actually probably people who just live in Jamaica themselves. But this guy uh, was called R- Reggie Carter, uh, and he lived and died in Jamaica. He did three films, all done in Jamaica. One was called John Silver's Turn to Treasure Island. and One was called The Lunatic and Sankofa, all in Jamaica. So he was an actor, this guy, as opposed to some of the others who weren't.
0: A local actor. As opposed to just a local hire. Local actor. Higher, a local local, yeah. local hire yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I think, too, one thing that just occurs to me, too, about how uh, Bond decides to make this quip is he's got to have this put on this face for the guard, right? Like, he wouldn't show up there and be like, this man is dead. Oh, God. You know, like, he wouldn't have yes. any sort of a reaction yes. like that. Yes. He's got to be the coolest yes. guy towards yes. this guard, you know? And uh, He really has, yeah. Yeah. And it is funny. You mentioned the double take, the guard double take. I, I mean, a double takes double are take. yeah. right. Double takes are a common thing in James Bond movies as well, <laughs> uh, as we see later. But in this case, I I do think that maybe if this moment occurs in Goldfinger, for instance, we'd probably cut away before the double take. Do you think so, Mitch? I think Just you're probably right. The, the line itself stands alone. Yeah, and I don't think we give the guard a moment. But. Uh,
1: yeah, that's probably, again, you know, Terrence Young just taking advantage of everything that he has. And the guy's reaction is pretty good. And so I can yeah. see why, why they would have held on it and left it in. It, I'm sure it was a well-needed joke at this point because it hasn't been that funny up to this point. You know, right. we get, get the humor anywhere we can. So the next room that Bond goes into is the casino set, Redressed. And right. so it has the same steps and you can look at it, it's more or less the same space. And so if you think about the casino set, you'll realize that this is actually the same space.
0: And they have just
2: same. set. Oh, that's uh, that's really clever. Oh, well done. It's do a very one?
0: cavernous yeah. office. I will say. A, you know, big office. He's he's using a little bit more space than he needs here, I'd say.
1: And it's it's hot in there, too, because uh, Sean Connery oh,
2: yeah, he fans, fans himself, himself with absolutely.
1: his hat. So he's working the props yeah. that are available to him.
2: But you know what, the thing is that, I mean, that might have been a piece of direction to actually, because that might have been shot in some studio somewhere. So so the director probably said, you know, uh, make it look like it's hot in here, you know, so that could have been a little, yeah a little note from the director to help everything, you know.
1: It does help the moment. It keeps it, Oh, it, it does. keeps it real. It does. And, and, yeah. And in fact, uh, Bond gets up to a lot of business on the desk cleaning up after the aftermath of the cigarette with the cyanide in it and everything else. He's very busy in this scene. Bond is, is working. When
2: I first saw this clip and I saw Bond d- discussing it with Prado Smith about a thing, and I didn't know what was going on, I suddenly thought to myself, oh, is that the guy that does all the gadgets? Are they just talking about... Maybe this is a gadget that he's fascinated by. So I thought, I, and then I realized what it yeah. was. But but it was a, it was you know, oh, this is a really interesting little thing here.
0: So was there a capsule inside the cigarette, or did the cigarette contain the cyanide? This is just a trivial little question I have, but we get that close up of the tobacco, and yeah. they're inspecting it. Was there a capsule inside of there? Mentioned? I you said there a capsule yeah, earlier. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He bites. So what's to bites, inspect here? He it's bites down there. on
1: something, and I assumed he bit down on a capsule
0: right. that was in there, and that the capsule. Yes,
2: it's got to be a capsule, I think. Yep. Yeah,
0: yeah, I, I think so too. But it's funny then that, that we get this close up of the cigarette, and the they're inspecting this tobacco. It's kind of like there's yes, nothing really yes. left to suspect to to inspect yeah, yeah, here. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But um, the, also the thought that there's cyanide in the tobacco, and that uh, he could have he could break it open and. Take a bite of it, or he could have slowly smoked himself to death. I don't know, was, I don't know if chemistry works. I don't know how cyanide works in, uh, when it's set on fire, but it's uh, just a thought I had as I was watching. Yeah. So
1: he could have let him light up and and, and just and had a whole, just yeah. slow conversation until he just drops dead.
0: Yeah, Right. It's yeah, certainly
1: more exciting the other way. <laughs> sure. So who is this guy that they're talking to, Ian? You've you've done some you've you've done some.
2: Uh... Yeah. Well, do you know why I was fascinated by this guy? Because you know what the thing is, it wasn't until um, uh, uh, I kept on thinking. Well, there's no name. He was when he rings him up from the uh, from the airport. He, he he asked to speak to the principal secretary. So there's no name given there, and I don't think it is until he's he's in the office. Bond is in the. Um, Room of Scragways, where he actually mentions the name Plato Smith. So, um, so I look, I try to find as much as I could about this guy, and there's nothing. There's no, uh, you look at him on IMDb, and there's no credits for him like that. Uh, and yeah, I can't even find anything about him. So, I think he must have been a local guy.
1: Yeah, the Terence Young says that they picked up local guys for the for the bridge, the bridge players mostly.
2: Yep. But he did a damn good job, I have to say. I mean, he really was very good. Good,
1: absolutely. good enough that they actually cut to him when he's on the phone uh, it, with with Bond at the airport. They 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 yep. actually worked him. He was good enough that they worked a shot of him in versus waiting until this, which is very nice, I think.
2: No, I think he's. I mean, that's why I was so surprised when I didn't see any other credits for him. I mean, because he, you know, and there's nothing. I couldn't even find anything about him, generally. So you know. Good on him.
1: In the book, he's Good this scruffy-haired young guy fiddling with oh, his really? pipe and who, who, after a, a casual, benevolent, racist comment, Fleming says, Bond liked him. And I just thought, that's just so... <laughs> Bond liked this guy. He can work with him. Oh, gosh. Yeah. Okay, great. That's wonderful.
2: Now, also, the the other guy in the scene, uh, so Super, Superintendent Duff, Right. This is played by William Foster Davis and also nothing, nothing as well on that. Uh, and uh, so so I found that really interesting that he is, um, he has no other credits. And yet I then looked down at the other credits actually on Dr. No. And right at the end, there's something very interesting that comes up, which is the fact that a guy called Robert Wrighty dubbed the superintendent Duff. So what you hear is not superintendent stuff. It's not the actor's voice at all. But it, it, it's a it's a voice dubbed by someone who did loads of dubbing, loads of dubbing on movies like Royal Hunt of the Sun, Lawrence of Arabia, uh, he, Jack Hawkins. When Jack Hawkins lost his voice, he was Jack because he you know, um, he it was a larynx which was removed, I think. But he dubbed all of Jack Hawkins stuff. So this guy. Wow. Robert Wright, was quite a boy, and yet, yeah, there he is. In the credits, as dubbing Superintendent Duff. So that's, that, so even though he was a local hired the guy, and, and probably just another guy, they didn't like what he did with his voice. So which, they, which is a pretty typical,
1: that's a typical James Bond thing that we'll find through many, many movies, including Ursula Andress's voice in this film. But Peter Hunt was very quick to revoice actors if he didn't think that they were giving him what he needed. Uh, and
2: wow, that's great. That's interesting. That. Oh, that's I, I
1: didn't realize that this whole sound-alike voice thing, it's still with us. I mean, there are actors in Los Angeles. There's a, I know for a fact there's a Bruce Willis sound-alike. And so when Bruce doesn't want to come in and do ADR, they hire this guy to come in and do it. So yeah, I Bur- also,
2: I mean, Bruce Willis I is movie, easy, though. Um, right? I did a movie called 84 Charing Cross Road right with Anthony Hopkins. And he is famous for being able to mimic actors absolutely and in between takes he would just do some voices for us which was wonderful and yet I heard in the future that that what he did he was employed he was employed to dub various other actors who had either passed on and they had to do some you know that they were bringing up the sort of you know making a nice uh, um, uh, reworking of the film he was brought in because he was that good
1: well, he did. He did Olivier in Spartacus. the snails go. and there oysters scene. There was no dialogue tracks yeah. of that, so he came in and did it with an older Tony Curtis. They both yeah. came in and revoiced oh, it.
2: Fantastic. Well, in the what heyday
0: of, in the heyday of edited for television movies, there had to be a cottage industry for that, right? For the dubbing over the profanity. Um, I remember watching. You know, I was raised on those movies and taping them off TV, and the voices were always attempting. Like, I wouldn't say always, but a lot of times attempting to say some ridiculous version of a, of a cuss word, you know, but have it sound like Mel Gibson. And uh, I bet there was a little industry for that. It would be an interesting thing to explore. You know, they had to get but somebody. Sure. To, and then
1: there's. The Exorcist, right? They had to get somebody to come in and right. redo Mercedes McCambridge, right?
0: Yeah. There was a lot of overdubbing in the Exorcist, right? Because they didn't actually want her to say some of the things she said. Uh, and, of course, there's the foreign markets, I guess. So there's people that are. uh Impersonating actors in foreign languages too, all over the world. It's so
1: weird. I was watching, um, I was watching Blood and Black Lace, the Mario Bava movie, and Paul Frees does like three voices, which is so weird. Right. So it's the same voice coming out of three different <laughs> actors, and it's not uh, particularly convincing. <laughs> was there? Did this guy do any other voices in in uh, Doctor No, Ian? Doesn't
2: look like it. Uh, I think he's only done this one credit.
0: This this will play through the rest of this scene and then into. Uh, the next scene as well. What do we think of the relationship between Bond and Superintendent or Commissioner Duff here? Because I don't, Bond seems to have a little bit of a problem with him. He's very curt with him a couple of yeah. times. Yeah. And does, Is that Duff? Is Duff, because Duff seems just slightly dim to me. But Or is it that Bond is supposed to be playing up this uh, lack of respect for local law enforcement thing? Which, yes, I mean, both. I think
2: that's yeah, yeah. I think, I think that's, I think that's more like it. I mean, I, and there's an arrogance, always an arrogance with Bond too, which is, which is, the the put down of people like that. I think, I think that, I think that's what's taking place.
0: So, he, you know, asks a pretty reasonable question. Do you want me to bring these guys in? The the, the... Bridge players, yes, right? Yes, yes, and and of course, a reasonable response would be like, "No, I think I'd rather meet them socially." But instead, Bond has to say, "Lord no, Lord no." Like, "You yeah. come on, what kind of question is that?" It's that's very exactly, rude. Right? Amateur,
1: amateur hour
0: here, right? And I think he's maybe he's just uh, asserting dominance right over this guy. Let's make sure we you know, I know you're the cock of the walk here in Kingston. You're the commissioner, but um, when when the when the spy is in town, he's Dominant here. I think he's he's in charge. He's in charge. The
1: boy's in charge. Plus, he'd rather go out to the country club anyway, wouldn't he?
0: Oh yeah, sure. Might as well get some drinks out of the out of the whole deal.
1: So we go to Miss Trueblood's house where she was murdered. What
0: do we What do we have there? We have some true blood on the on the floor.
1: Yes, we do. A very
2: large (laughs) patch of blood on the raffia floor. I love that.
0: Which is just there. Is there any point to that? I kind of was wondering, like, what do we need to hear? But we know she, we saw her get shot. Why do we see the blood? Why do we spend any time with that at all? Um, just to talk about her blood type. We know she got shot. There's nothing to learn here with the blood. Anyway, I just, as I was watching, I was like, everything else kind of makes sense uh, to, to te- you know, teach us a little bit about the procedure. Like when we get to the radio, okay, we learn a little bit about procedure then we start to actually discover new evidence after that. But what's the blood? What do, what do you think, Mitch? They
1: didn't have to clean it up. <laughs> I mean, maybe, really, maybe it was as simple as that. They shot it. I'm sure they shot everything on the same day at this location. Yeah. Right. Yeah. You get as much out of the location as you can. We had already seen a. We'd already seen blood on the floor, right? When they turned her over, so they probably just yeah. probably just left it.
0: I just don't know why they spend any time talking about it or maybe they've got a little a, extra time. Away for
1: it. Since they're here on location on in this place using right. it all day. Maybe we're maybe it's a little padded. Because there is that one shot that drops back out of the master and you see on frame right there's a, a guard standing there. And it's a really beautifully composed and lit shot. It does absolutely nothing for the story or the plot, you know, for or, or character. It's just this kind of moment that shows off the production values of the set. And so I just get the sense that, you know, they're they're making the most of what they have, you know, because they got no money. So they're going to try to do whatever they can with each location.
2: Do you know what the budget was for this movie?
1: Yeah, it was like three hundred thousand pounds, which was just really. Yeah. So it was just under a million dollars.
2: Yeah. Goodness me. Wow. Wow. And I think what did Bond get paid for his first movie? Any idea?
1: Uh, I don't know what he got paid. I don't know. That's, that's a good question. I bet it's somewhere. I bet we could find that.
2: Yeah. But I don't think
1: anybody got rich on this movie. No, no, no. But they had to shoot a lot at Pinewood because the weather was terrible. So we get some scenes here with nice weather. We've got a, two shots of beautiful, three shots of beautiful blue skies, but apparently that was not the case, that they had terrible weather problems, and that's why so much was, was removed back to Pinewood. You've worked at Pinewood, um, haven't you,
2: Ian? Oh yes i've done several movies there yeah you no, know, the englishman went up a hill and came down a mountain and then um, my first movie ever was shot there with top secret uh, with val kilmer and uh and oh my god my my wonderful moment of just just a brief little thing about you know it's the first movie i've ever done and so i i turn up on the day and i have a scene to do where i'm get i get shot as the novelty cell i get shot and so and i'm fascinated to know who i'm going to play the scene with i'm coming back you know, in a week's time to do this scene. And, and so I asked various people, I said, oh, who's playing this character? And they go, oh, that's Omar. And I said, Omar who? He said, Omar Sharif. Okay, like, yeah, 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 right. <laughs> right, yeah, Omar Sharif, yeah, yeah, yeah. And he said, no, 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 it really is Omar Sharif. Omar Sharif? So I turn up on the day. it's Omar Sharif, and I'm completely gobsmacked. I'm, I'm just, you know, I don't know what to do. There I am with this, you know, legend in front of me. And so we... We do the scene and the assistant director comes up and said, oh, uh, Mr. McNeese, we booked a table for you in the Pinewood restaurant. And I go, oh, oh well, thank you. But uh, Lunchtime. And so I, I go and have lunch with uh, with Omar. Uh, it's a buffet, so you go and help yourself. And so I I completely sort of, you know, pile on my plate as much as I can and come back to the table. And he's got a tossed green salad in front of him, right? I've got this huge plate of food. <laughs> and I realized that, The guy's a gourmet, right? So he doesn't eat lunch. He just has one huge, beautiful meal in the evening. And there I am with my fat food in front of me. I'm such a dick. And all these people come up and say, hi, hi, Omar. And I'm going, oh, God. If I could die now, I'd be happy.
0: So we go to the radio, right? So we've seen the blood. And we go to the radio where... um, where Duff explains that well we that it was still on when we got here we tried to call whoever's on the other end but it was dead and Bond quickly says and it'll stay off very <laughs> gruff. <laughs> like good lord he's just yep. telling you what he did yep. man like relax you don't, don't have yep. to touch that. the guy yeah. don't
1: touch those dials
0: <laughs> he's he's just again talking to him like this is f- you're, like you said earlier amateur hour this is like yeah. of course it's not going to be on once the security protocols are breached that that frequency's gone forever so on and so forth there's again another example of him just kind of disrespecting the in front of his own men too by the way this is bond kind of not dressing down per se but it's uh, definitely not being that respectful in front of this guy's men and the guy takes it in stride though yeah. he doesn't seem to bother him any but.
1: so what do we think do you think that's Terrence young's direction or is it connery making the most out of uh, not a lot
2: Oh, I think it's Connery making the most out of a lot. I mean, I, I would imagine, I have no idea what Terence Young was like, but I mean, the thing is this, is that he's probably a technical director and spending a lot of time with technical shots and stuff like that and leaving leaving the actors to get on with it. So I would imagine that um, Sean, it's probably up to Sean and to bring in the colour like that. There's a bit that I notice when uh, Bond is looking at a photograph of Strangway's apartment, in, in in the apartment and he he says to um he says to the superintendent who is this man in the photograph with Dent and the superintendent tells him oh it's a fisherman quarrel and Bond then says well he drove the car that tailed me from the airport and I thought hang on a minute so I, I went back and looked at the footage before and if you look at the footage the two cars are so far apart from each other that Bond there's no way he could have recognised the driver so that's a nice little sort of
1: I've totally forgotten about that moment until, until you mentioned it, you know, and made me go back and look and see whether I could even tell whether it was Quarrel sitting behind the wheel when Jack Lord uh, lights his cigarette off of the other guy's cigarette. It could be him, but it could just as easily not be him because he's dressed this, he's dressed the same way through the entire rest of the movie with the red shirt and the and the khakis. Yeah. But in yep. this moment, he's not. He's wearing a, a sort of floral print shirt and a hat and you only see the back of his head and there's no side view mirror so there's no reflection that could that could tip us off to whether or not that is in fact Coral. I mean it probably is, but yeah, there's no way he could have recognized them. And he's going to get Coral's name in a, in a few minutes anyway, so it's kind of a useless piece of information. Doesn't we don't get much for it.
0: Well, it makes me wonder cuz he doesn't. Duff does not give him his name. He he says a fisherman. He just calls him a That's fisherman. That's right. Yes, you're right. And, and again, wouldn't Duff? Everybody knows who Quarrel is, right? I mean, yes, it's, yes. Again, yes. Duff doesn't yes. know who Quarrel is. Is kind of what having yeah. watched the movie. Of course, in the scene, you wouldn't think that the first time you're watching it. But after watching the movie or read, especially reading the book, you're like, "What is wrong with this guy? How does he not know who Quarrel is?" Everybody knows who Quarrel yeah. is. <laughs> so again, Duff, yeah, Duff yeah, is yeah. maybe a little dim. The one thing before the picture, I wanted to ask you guys what your take was on this, because we have Bond walking around acting superior to this police officer, police commissioner. And he comes uh, in his little investigation, all the beats of the investigation, he comes to a book, right? And he it has a sheet of paper, which turns out to be a note, stuck in the book. He yanks the paper out and then looks at the note and gleans information. So here we're getting him get some information. But my first thought was... Hey, what about were the, what about the book, man? I mean, it's a bookmark. Aren't you maybe curious yes, what page yeah. he was on? I would think that you know, a thoughtful in the scene, you would have him open it up, and maybe there'd be a bit of information on that too. But to me, it's like, hey, Bond, you're forgetting something. Yeah, <laughs> Maybe like, you're not books. the best yes. investigator after all. If it's got, if it's got
1: the receipt from from Dent in the book, we can't tell what the book is though, right?
0: There's no. It's, it's, not, a, ge- it's a geology book. Listen, right. John.
2: John, you know you, you've missed a career. Your de- <laughs> your detection is superb, quite frankly. <laughs> right. I'm very. I would impressed have just opened the book. Impressed. I think yes. that's pretty easy. That's <laughs> no, very good. Very good. Yeah,
0: but I just anyway. To me, it's it's obviously it's a throwaway moment and not really indicative of anything. But in my mind, it shows that Bond isn't as thorough as maybe he should be.
1: Yeah. Well, he's certainly thorough at the hotel room in the next scene, right?
0: Yes, very.
1: But first, he's going to have a drink. So another first for us with this vodka martini.
0: Right. We don't we don't get Bond to order it. So that's, the, that's a different take on this than we get later. Uh, obviously, we missed the part where he told, where he instructed this guy how to prepare the martini. I'm going to get into some uh, mixology here for a minute. What's different here is he calls it a mild dry or medium, sorry, medium dry. I don't believe, do we ever hear Bond say that? usually just says vodka martini right medium dry i would say like for a lot of people would be just sort of like coating the like sometimes you'd coat a glass or you just put a tiny bit of vermouth so you're not putting the full measure of vermouth and it's not dry as in no vermouth or extra dry as in no vermouth so maybe you're getting a a, just a dash of vermouth here But of course, the big question about the Bond martini, as we've heard discussed over the years now, we've heard it discussed a lot. I think specifically, I remember there's the scene from the West Wing where President Bartlett is opining about how horrible of a martini this is that Bond always orders because it's shaken and a martini is appropriately stirred, which is true, I think. Um, At the end of the day... It's whatever you like. Like As a bartender, I would say, well, sure, if that's what you want. I would never instruct someone not to get it that way. But appropriately, if this was a daiquiri, you'd shake it, but a martini should be stirred because there's really nothing to create this much dilution for. There's just ice. There's just booze and a little bit of vermouth. So really, all you got to do is stir it to dilute it and try not to knock the ice around to the point where there's so many chips in it that it continues to dilute as it goes along. So I kind of wonder when I first when they first cut to the shake, it's the weakest shake I've ever seen. Like when I shaked a drink, I put it over my shoulder and I shake the hell out of it. I kind of wondered if this guy's like, yeah, this guy, uh, I'm going to give it just the slightest shake because he really shouldn't be shaking. Right, because
1: things. if you if you shake it really, uh, if you shake it to get it cold, right, if that's the, yeah.
0: the idea is just to try to get it as cold it. As, as cold as you
1: dilute. can, as fast as you get, will it still dilute at the same rate whether it's warm or cold?
0: Whether like, it's warm or cold,
1: warmer or colder. Like if it gets really, really cold, really fast, when you shake it, it will, will it dilute less because
0: uh, I I guess technically. But the point to me is when you're diluting the drink, uh, you want to dilute it to a certain level, and then you want to pour it off so that um, it stays that way. It stays at that level of dilution. If you get it to the point, if you're practiced enough, you get it to the point where you want it to be. You want it to stay there. What shaking it does. creates a lot of ice chips, right? And some people used to, I remember I used to make martinis and people would be like, please make sure there's like an iceberg level layer on top of it. They wanted that. And what's weird to me about that is it's just going to be water that's created over time, which might as well just get it on the rocks at that point.
2: What's interesting is that the waiter actually says the line he has, right? Which is one medium dry vodka martini mixed, like you said, sir, not Mm -hmm. stirred. So right. there's no mention of shaken in there at all, which comes later, mixed, like you said, sir, not stirred. It's only later that we get the the shaken business, isn't it?
0: It is because um, in my, you know, if somebody said to me mixed, I would not think shake necessarily. Honestly, yeah. the the verb is that's a strange thing to say, but obviously he meant shake because you see him shaking it. So, but I, I did, uh, you know, looking at it. Uh, if I were training this guy and he shook a, a drink that way, I would be like, "I'd be like, dude, let's get some, let's shake a little bit better than that." You know, this isn't doing much for the drink. But then again, it's a martini, so he might just be kind of placating Bond. <laughs> like, sure, I'll shake it, cluck 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 cluck, and he gets it to the right dilution. But he's not creating all these ice chips and so on that uh, that over dilute the drink. I'm sure, I hope that we hear from other people that are experts in. I, I haven't done this. I haven't been a bartender or cocktail creator for a long time now, so maybe I'm off on some things. But um, to me, this is of course. There's always the question of vodka martinis too. Like uh, a martini's supposed to be gin, right? <laughs> but whatever. If you like vodka, you like vodka. So,
1: so here's my question: There's there doesn't seem to be the appearance of any olive or lemon twist or anything else, right? To there's no garnish. Right. Is it true that what the vermouth does is it 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 hits your system? Faster than the than the vodka does. I had this guy give me this lecture one night, and was saying <laughs> okay. that a martini without vermouth is is a bad thing because the vermouth somehow hits your system faster than the vodka does, and so it has this pre kick to it.
0: I don't. I, hmm. Does that make any I, I, sense? I mean, I don't know everything, but that doesn't make any sense to me. I, okay. I, mean, I
1: understood. how you explained
0: it, but that's what I... Do you put vermouth in a shot? No. I mean, if if you were trying to... If you're taking a shot so it hits you fast, you don't...
1: What's the point of you, the vermouth? The vermouth's
0: flavor. It's I mean, it was initially... It's
1: It's only flavor.
0: Yeah. I mean, the initial, as I understand it, I'm, all these things are always uh, considered somewhat apocryphal because the origins of a lot of these drinks are so old, but... The original martini was uh, was sweet vermouth and gin, and it was a good measure, like a half ounce of vermouth. And to me, that's what – I like a martini that has a good amount of vermouth because to me the vermouth is the flavor. And especially if you get a really good one with like a good herbal uh, profile to it and so on. And then you get a gin that's got an interesting herbal profile or you get a dry gin that's just basic and you get the vermouth flavor. To me, when people ask for a martini and extra dry, I'm like, that's not a martini. That's just a diluted shot that you're sipping. You know, right. But you, it is interesting that you bring up the garnish because I'm trying to remember, it, in the book, it's got a twist, right? And I think typically, if you do get a garnish, it is in a twist. In the book,
1: he's drinking gin and tonics.
0: Oh, right. Maybe that's why Dude, I'm thinking Dr. of it. No, I don't think, there's a, the I don't fruit.
1: think wow. there's a martini at all in uh, Dr. No. I think all oh, he drinks right. are gin and tonics. It says, and Some uh, bourbon, to too. I found
2: out, uh, out about a bit of... Uh, it says, says the phrase first appears in the novel Di- Diamonds Are Forever in 1956, although Bond himself doesn't actually say it until Dr. No. So it starts starts back there in 56 with Diamonds Are Forever.
1: Well, we'll see. Maybe what? he says it to Dr. No. Maybe that's when the martinis get served because I'm sort of reading along with the book and up to yeah. this mm-hmm. point all Bond has been drinking are gin and tonics and many gin and tonics. He's, he's pounding them.
0: Oh, and I, I remember, down. you know, you don't get, always get like tight close-ups of the drinks of the martinis. Usually it's just because also because it's such a familiar moment in every movie, it's kind of become a throwaway thing. But I do remember, I, is it Casino Royale or Skyfall where you get like the most beautiful looking one you've ever seen. And they, they really take their time and it's got that spiral. It's Vesper. twist. Vesper. It's the Vesper. The, so it oh, has, that's the Vesper. So it right, has right, that right.
1: lemon twist in it. Yeah. Because that's, right, I forgot about the Vesper. That's Lille yeah. Blanc. Right. Yeah. It, or, yeah. Lille yeah, Blanc. Gin and vodka,
0: mm-hmm.
1: with a twist it's a silly, of lemon
0: In my opinion, wow. a silly drink. <laughs> Why, a silly what, drink what does it do drink. to you to have a have a gin and vodka? Like commit, <laughs> just so you're, you're just like, the like cutting right, the yeah. gin, really, right? Yeah. That's just my opinion about the vesper. But anyway, we don't have to. This, uh, that's uh, probably enough of cocktail that is hour enough because we'll get back <laughs> to the Smirnoff eventually. And,
2: listen, I want to order one now if I could. <laughs> you know,
1: come on now. <laughs> Um, well, so he proceeds to spy-proof the room, and I think this is really interesting uh, just in terms of the economy of the shot. It's all a master with one pickup when he's, once he kneels down to put the hair across the door uh, and, and then crosses back over to get his shoulder holster, and then again Young drops back to the master. So it's really, with the exception of the insert of the hair across the thing, there's there's really two shots that make up this entire bit. Uh, What's again,
2: going on with the briefcase? What does he do to the briefcase? Because he touches it for some yeah, reason. Yeah, he, he puts talcum powder. He Oh, is that what it was? Yeah,
1: oh, so yeah. He's gonna, that will pay off later. So he's, he's uh, setting it for fingerprints in case anybody touches his briefcase. Nice. And then he puts I the do- hair...
0: I do have to say that the insert of the hair, it kind of grosses me out, man. <laughs> I mean, it's, uh, saliva and hair in a tight close up. It's just kind of gross. You think I that, don't know. You think Peter hair Hunt hair, but...
1: shot that back at. Do you think they skipped the insert and Peter Hunt
0: picked Could it up be. later? <laughs> Could be.
2: Yeah, and whose hair was it? That's what I want to know. <laughs> you know, there's Bond saying, you're not taking it out of my hair.
0: Yeah. <laughs> take it out right.
2: of my two oh, hair, yeah. maybe, but not take it out of my hair.
1: <laughs> it's right. Bob Simmons's hair. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, So on we go then to the um, club where we're going to meet the rest of the bridge buddies. Right. And we've got Anthony Dawson there. We've got Professor Dent. Now, Ian, he's a a real real actor. Uh,
2: He's a real actor. And also what's quite interesting is that Terrence Young also cast him in From Russia With Love and Thunderball. uh, but, 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 But just his image, because he's stroking the cat, He's you Blofeld. don't actually see yeah. him.
1: And it's a different voice. They use a it's different a, voice. It's,
2: it's, it's, it's our friend back again.
1: It's Eric Palmer, isn't it? I think I mean, it's that's Eric Palmer. That's
2: right. It's Palmer. That's right. Yeah. 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 The physical presence of Ernst Stavro Blofeld from Russia. You Lord. know,
1: they asked uh, Noel Coward to play Dr. No, but he said, he says, you must be joking. <laughs> I would never do that. <laughs> really? Yeah. Yeah. Well he and was also, friends with Fleming. He's friends so. with Fleming and he was he was said that he was appalled when they read the book and Fleming described Honey Rider's butt as a young boy's backside. Yep. And <laughs> he wrote a letter and Bill uh, Coward said, Good heavens, what are you thinking of?
0: <laughs> so Right. There, there's an extensive in the oft mentioned uh letters, Ian Fleming Letters book that I've been going through, there's a extensive letter about that there's a there's correspondence with coward and um and fleming about this and yeah he cowards the
1: one bald. who also says when you're making a martini you just show it the vermouth
0: yeah right that's a very no <laughs> cowardish thing to say uh yeah good point he's so he was the dry he was the extra dry guy right um this
1: anthony dawson i remember him from uh curse of the Werewolf. Yes. He's like the yeah, really yeah, corrupt yeah. Uh, ruler guy, I think. The king, isn't he? Or is yeah? He's the he's the corrupt, cruel king that ends up throwing the girl into the. She scratches him or something, and he throws her into the. The uh,
2: evil Marquis sinistro Yeah, the Marquis. Yeah. Yeah, the, yeah, the that's workforce. Right. That's right.
1: And, and he gets all decrepit. That he goes through several old age makeups, and by the end, he's all gray and really creepy looking. And he's great in that movie. So no, so he must have cost money.
2: He's probably the only one around that group that actually cost any money, because the others would have been, you know, probably doing it for free and just, the you know, the takeaway food. But the uh, but uh, yeah, but he was, uh, you know, he's a proper boy with a proper uh, agent to get him a good fee, right, or a reasonable so, one anyway.
0: So right away, Dent um, throws True Blood's name out or she or mention of her the Chez La Femme. He's immediately throwing the suspicion. He's trying to point Bond down that road of suspicion, right? Yeah. Um, for good reason. Obviously, this is part of his job is to make sure that this guy isn't going down the right track. But, yeah, right out of the gate, you get that. And nobody else seems to be even uh, humoring that, really, right? Yeah. It's like that... That, yeah. Well, she. yeah. Did you ever meet her, huh? I saw her around, and that was that's about it. It's like he doesn't really. It's not. He's not very good at this. Is what I think. Does I think there's a
1: does Bond look suspicious in particular towards him? Do you think?
0: You know, I didn't note that. It could be. I'd have to look back at it, but um, it could be because wouldn't you be? I mean, wouldn't that be the first thing you got to throw up red flags when you're investigating? And if somebody immediately throws a, throws out this uh, theory that you're not 100 percent on board with, um. You're going to have to flag that guy right in your mind i would think so um i don't know if connery plays the scene that way i didn't notice it but nobody else seems to give him much give it much credence like well did you ever did you ever even meet her now i just think he's not a very good counter spy i think that's part of what we're taking away from this scene
2: what's interesting is the uh um is the other um actor or or person they brought into the actual character's name is General Potter, I think is his name.
1: Right, general, general Potter. Yeah.
2: General Potter is actually in the film, and it's played by Colonel Burton, is his name, and I can find nothing about him. So he's been referred to. He's been referred in the credits as Colonel Burton. So he was a proper Colonel. Yeah. Uh, playing playing this General Potter. Playing a general. He got, he, a, he got a promotion. Yeah. <laughs> he got a promotion, <laughs> that, that but was he did pay. a damn... Plus, I mean, he did a damn good job. I mean, it really is. I mean, he plays a nice little scene there. Yeah. I yeah, thought yeah, he was very, very good. And didn't need to get dubbed. They kept his voice.
1: So if it's true that this is, in fact, the redress set, that means they would have had to have flown these guys from Jamaica back to Pinewood.
2: Where? Oh, Isn't that's that funny? So
1: they th- probably thought right. they were saving money by hiring them locally, and then the weather is so bad, they have to go back to Pinewood to shoot interiors and uh, unless that's a location at, that they've redressed, but I think it's a set. I'm pretty, I, I'm pretty sure it's a set.
0: Well, you'll you'll notice in the background, uh, and I noticed it as, like, a nice Ken Adam touch, actually. The windows are placed, like, you know, mid-screen kind of angling down uh, from, from the top third of the screen. Uh, the windows are in the background, and they're all covered with a, what, what I guess is a, a yellow awning outside. So you don't actually see any weather outside so it could go either way either they realized they didn't have the good weather and they put the awnings out there at the real location or it already had them by some stroke of luck or that was just set dressing for a pinewood because you don't want to see the you know rest of the studio in the background but it, it could have been a location i'm thinking because you don't see through the windows anyway
2: yes. i can't see them i really can't see them flying them to pinewood i can't see them doing that
0: that's I what they i'm must- thinking I-
2: I think it must have been done in Jamaica, I'm sure, I'm sure. I mean, the, the the producers would have just pulled their hair out if they started flying in people from Jamaica to do that scene.
0: Right, and if you had th- probably the idea of the scene when it was storyboarded was there was going to be this lovely blue sky in the windows in the background, and when they didn't have that, they had to come up with some other scheme. Or and they was came it up with nighttime yellow.
2: by the time they, they went there for the... Was it nighttime it would have maybe may have been by the time he got there
0: it might have been nighttime
1: no it's morning because um, is it
0: okay I think isn't it well I don't know because uh, he goes to so the next goes see, to when he goes to see the hotel
1: Quarrel, is that the next day morning. I think morning? it's the
0: next day ah uh, okay because that seems to be morning right so if we're, if we're looking at the timeline as um yeah I would say this is definitely evening because he's he's in the when he's in the hotel I get the impression it's evening. Yeah, uh, just by the color, the lighting of the room, he's not day. Like, he's not he...
1: day drinking either, right? He's having right. an evening well, drink. Not
0: that he wouldn't. Yeah, he I know. certainly <laughs> has. <laughs> but that's when the gin and tonics. Let's uh, you know start the day, <laughs> cut, cut the gin with a little tonic.
1: Yeah, that's a for day drink, and then the right. and then the martini is a night drink. Right. So that kind of wraps that scene up, but I have to find out now whether I'm wrong. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe it isn't a set. Maybe it isn't a redress. Maybe that's all incorrect. So maybe if anybody knows on the Facebook page, let me know whether I'm right or wrong about this whole casino and government house being... Oh, no, we're at the club. We're at the club. club. Oh, right. So, but even then, I mean, we're still... The government government house still had those local actors there. So we're still dealing with this issue about whether or not whether and so, yeah, so let me know. You're
0: right, man. That's weird. That, and you would think that would be a story we heard about the yeah production that they had to fly those guys up to yeah. England. That's quite a that's quite an expense. For it, I wonder is if it's chance. possible.
1: But these two, but this the redress can't be government house and the club, right? Those couldn't be a redress. That can't be. There's no are there steps? <laughs> we'll have to look and see now whether there's. Well, there, whether the, the angle they're
0: shooting at could the steps could have been off camera, right? yeah um so maybe
1: so maybe that's that, it well <laughs> the mystery we have a new mystery in the midst of all of this investigation right. i love
0: basically. that i love that but there's no more mystery about who, coral coral's name is dropped finally
1: yes finally so
0: now we have Coral. we're in the book mitch we get coral uh, we've ha- we've already met coral and know he's an ally for pages well that story, and coral right? like, has been
1: the ally in live and let die. So this is the second appearance by quarrel in a bond book, but obviously since it's the first bond movie, they can't do that. But yeah, the um, relationship between bond and quarrel in the book is likened by Fleming to that of a Scottish Laird and his best, you know, gamekeeper. And so there's Mm. this implied superiority all through the book and the way that bond treats quarrel in the book is, even more patronizing than the way that Connery treats Gatzmuller in this. I mean, at least in this um, quarrel, at least at the beginning, starts out as a as a potential opponent. He's not going to give Bond any information whatsoever, and he's not the least bit deferential to him. But we're getting ahead of ourselves. In that, I do want to mention that we got that moment where Connery asks the woman, or Bond asks the woman, "Yeah, where's Quarrel?" You know, and she. She says, that's him. She points right over to him. So everybody does know, as you said, John, everybody knows who Quarrel is, clearly. You just yeah. ask anybody, and they know where he is.
0: Except for Superintendent Except Duff. for Duff. Yeah, he's the only one who doesn't know. <laughs> the, the lead cop in town is no the only idea. guy that doesn't <laughs> yes. know who Quarrel yes, is. Yes, yes,
1: yes. <laughs> yeah, it's good. But this is a pretty nice little moment between these two guys, uh, because Quarrel's tough. And it's played in a in a single um, two shot. There's no mm-hmm. cutting. It's just the actors move their positions a little bit, so the frame changes. But it's it's a two shot, and they got to do it for real in real time. It's pretty pretty good.
0: Do you think the choice there might have been a weather related one as well? Like you could see it being. We got the good weather right now. We don't have time for multiple setups today. It's gonna the clouds are gonna roll in again. Let's just do this in a in a one or a two shot. And move around with these guys, we don't have time for cross-cutting. Uh, they're
1: clearly moving yeah. really fast on this day. Although you get a really great reverse of Connery watching quarrel, you know, watching him off camera with the big, there's a big ship behind them and the sky is blue and it's a really gorgeous shot of both him and the environment that he's in. So that seems to be the, the punchline. You know, you've got the two shot with the scene and then he turns around and we get that, that other shot. What do we know about this actor? A real he's a real actor right we know quite a bit
2: absolutely he's not only is a real actor he's quite a, a substantial actor too and um, he um, for a lot of his uh, career was um, he did a lot of work in Rome and he started off with Carlo ponti so so um, he's done a lot of a lot of work in Italy um, and he won an award at the cannes Film Festival for his role in Slovenian a film. A Slovenian film called Valley of the Peace. uh, his name is John Kitzmiller, Uh, but it also says he's famous for his role as Quarrel in the 1962 Bond film Doctor No. So that's where he's picked out from. But he's done a lot of work, and uh, so yeah, interesting that he. uh, And he's very good too. So you know,
1: it's amazing how many of those actors in the 50s and 60s found steady employment in Italy. You know, they were, for one reason or another, they hit there. And some people had made made great livings just working in Italian pictures.
2: Yeah, he said he made uh, his home there and ultimately started more than 50 European films, often playing an angry black man, in man fighting racism. So there you go, even in those days, there we are.
1: I should mention, you worked at Chinachita, didn't you? I, do
2: you know what I did? I did Rome, Rome, uh, series one and two in uh, in that one in the back lot in Rome, where um, Gangs of New York was uh, made, and all the rest of it. No, very exciting to have worked there in the back lot at Rome.
1: Does it feel uh, historical? I've never been to Cinecitta. Does it? Is there? Is...
2: While I was there, yes, it was like it's like a lot. It's just like um, has the same feeling driving through the. I've worked at Paramount just driving through that little, you know, arch at Paramount. is so exciting. Well,
1: John, any final thoughts about these minutes?
0: No, I think we covered these pretty good. I think we got, I think we hit everything.
1: Ian came loaded for bear, man. Thanks for looking all those people up. That has been really helpful.
2: I know, but you know what? I think I I was outbeaten. I was outbeaten by the sermon that was the drinks best, I have to say. (laughs) i I think I think that uh I think that the twenty minutes we spent on martini i <laughs> think out outrun everything else i mean that takes that takes a biscuit, I'm afraid for
1: me that's great well, will you come back uh and join us in from Russia with love? Oh, you keep me away, baby <laughs> <laughs> we really appreciate you coming on and we'll no yeah, I really so much uh,
2: thoroughly enjoyed it, and it's love to be part of it too, so that's great. John, you want to wrap us up?
0: Sure. Uh, well, just uh, come over to the Facebook page. Tell us what we got wrong. Tell me if I was horribly wrong about my, uh, uh, my martini opinions, if you want, or anything else that we talked about on the show. We'd love to mix it up with the listeners. And, uh, and otherwise, we'll be back next week for more minutes and another guest.